Welcome to the Imagine Place podcast. I'm your host, Doug Shapiro, and I'm searching for voices that can help inspire a more creative and courageous youth. carefully edit all of my episodes. I work hard to chisel things down, so I leave you with just the high-impact stuff from every conversation. But I took a different approach to this interview. Well, first, because nearly the entire conversation was high-impact, but also because I want you to feel how I felt sitting at this table with George Bandy. Every story he tells, the pauses, the sincerity in his voice, it all just sucks you in. George is a global leader in sustainability. He was one of the OGs of the USGBC, serving three years as their chairman of the board. Check this out, 16 years as the VP of sustainability at Interface, even led Amazon's global circularity efforts for two years, and currently as chief sustainability officer for Darling Fibers, his work is impacting products that most of us interact with in our daily lives. All right, now, Put yourself at this table with me and George. It's after hours at the Mannington showroom in Atlanta. Thank you, Mannington. The place is cleared out. He reaches in his bag and pulls out a well-traveled and very well-weathered old notebook. As I begin to engage with him, you haven't yet made great eye contact. He's thumbing through this book, and I'm trying to get a peek at what is in this thing without being too obvious. George clearly has a plan here. I mean, George, what's in this notebook? Like, what do you put in this? <laughs> I mean, I'm fascinated. So um, these are what I call like bandy thoughts, right? So, okay. you know, I'll leave this session and I'll go this evening and I'll have a drink. And then what I'll do is I'll just jot down like stuff that I was motivated, stimulated. Sometimes it's aspirational goals that come out or something that I said I was going to do that I didn't do that I just now remembered because we've had this conversation. Or um, some of them are notes <laughs> from previous meetings. Some of them are actually like um, things that I wrote down just because I was stimulated or motivated by something somebody else said or something that I saw. Or, bro, I literally have like three or four of these. I think there's a couple more in my bag. That, yeah. And do you go back through them like you're doing now? I mean, is that kind of a... Probably every week. Wow. Every week I peruse back through, and I'm actually going to grab another one right now. Yeah. That's why your thoughts are always so clear. (laughs) You take the time to actually remember and review. Yeah, I I think that's a lost art, like, because you can, you know... Google and kind of grab everything right now off the internet, but I think you lose people's intent when you do that, right? Just because you read a message again doesn't mean that you get that same intent Hmm. of what someone meant by it. Like, if you read Ray's book, you might be motivated, but if you heard Ray give the speech, that that human component of delivery, it's different. Dr. King's speech, Mahatma Gandhi. Like, it is something about the goosebumps that you get from a speech that you don't get from a book, right? You may get stimulated, motivated. You know, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. But what I am saying is that the approach that you have to those things is a little bit different. And how you feel in those moments. And I think if you ask me what's been lost... Um, in sustainability, that's probably it, honestly, is the emotional connectivity to people regarding sustainability. We've gotten so lost in trying to prove scientifically or that there are some things that science can't prove. It's almost like we need to read less about sustainability and just talk more about it. Yeah. I think people, you know, lose... (laughs) How can I say this and not be (laughs) out of order? Um, They're scientists, research people, you know, professors 
that don't really share their thoughts well, right? And so for them, their comfort zone is putting things in compartments or systems or diagrams or illustrations, and you need that. But in order to be really motivated, for me, maybe not for everybody, is understanding the impact on people through the connection of environmental, social, and governance to me is critically important because now you're making decisions as a human being that not only impact your corporate life, but your personal life, right? And you've got the ability to influence others. People lose sight of the fact that we're the only creature that has the capacity to do anything about what's happening. Huh. Wow. Every other creature is impacted by our decisions, right? Yeah. So as things begin to look bad and you start seeing species disappear and, you know, there's no thought of, like, humanity. Like, I, I remember when you get into a story recording, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, I remember going to New Orleans for Green Build after the really bad hurricane. And we were down there and, you know, they did all this rebuilding effort. Um, I was at Interface at the time and I was also serving as, I think I was the vice chairman, about to be the chairman at that Green Build of United States Green Building Council. And there were a lot of people down there who had done a lot of work on homes. And that's when the nest and other versions of the nest were created. And so part of the project is that they had done really good remodeling efforts on low-income homes. They had really done a good job of rebuilding them and people were coming back in. And um, they were talking about these features and they were handing out LED light bulbs to families. Like, hey, you moved in, but here are some LED bulbs. It's going to lower your energy costs, blah, 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 blah. And so they're having that conversation. And one of the gentlemen was so excited about the work that he was doing, unintentionally shared with a, a grandmother, a lady with a house coat. You could tell she had been cooking, you know, the four pockets in the front, yeah. Southern cuisine. You could smell it coming out of the door. And he was having this conversation with her. And he said to her, he says, hey, ma'am, you ought to consider putting these light bulbs all over your house. It'll lower your energy bill, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, well, she said, well, baby, how much do they cost? You know, back then they were steep, oh, like yeah. five times the cost of a regular light bulb. And when he says, oh, yeah, but they're going to help us with our climate commitment and we're all trying to reduce it so we don't have these types of hurricanes. And he, he was sincere. She said, well, well, baby, how much do they cost? And when he told her what they cost, she says, oh, I can't do that, baby, because if I got to choose between my medicine and a light bulb, I choose my medicine all day. At that moment, I recognized that Sometimes we impose our sustainability will on people who have other needs. They're in a food desert, right? right? They, their income is strapped and you're asking them to purchase a nest. And I think that that's the lack of humanity about our imposition. Mm -hmm. So we'll walk by 20 homeless people down in Florida to go pull a straw out of a turtle's nose. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. You will walk by, like, not ask them if they want to eat. Have they eaten? Can, you know, can I help you get some soap or lotion? Or we'll, we'll do that because our scope is so narrowed that we've lost. Like, that, that gives people an escape route not to engage with humanity. And that's what I mean by... Is it because the, they're afraid? Is it because it's messy? Is it because... What, why did we leapfrog that? It's, it's hard. It's hard. Right? It requires you to humble yourself and recognize that, you know, the first time that humanity came back to its senses, so to speak, was my grandmother's best friend is still living. My grandmother's gone on, but my grandmother's best friend is, is still living. Miss Jessie Mae Pollard, right? 92, I think she turned 93 last month. Still talk to her on the phone. I talked to her a couple of days ago. And during COVID, I remember talking to her. And, you know, I'm trying to express sustainability to her in ways, just kind of get some of that senior level, like old mother's wisdom back. 
And I was like, well, well, Miss Jesse, what do you think about COVID? She's like, well, baby, Mother Nature sneezed and reminded us that we're human. Hmm. Best quote I've ever heard. Wow. She said, Mother Nature sneezed and reminded us that we're human. She said, for the first time, a gentleman in the grocery store asked to help me get my groceries. Wow. Because it reminded us that we're all human. COVID didn't discriminate. Right. (laughs) It didn't care if you were young, old, rich, poor, black, white, Jew, Gentile, (laughs) Protestant, Catholic. It didn't discriminate. It was like for once, everyone had that in common. People were speaking to you. Hey, do you need a mask? Can I help? They were checking on neighbors. It reminded you of humanity, right? The interesting thing is, in my opinion, this is my humble opinion, sustainability did that for me. Oh, wow. In the 90s, right? Um, it, It reminded me that we're connected, right? It took away the walls of separation between nature and humans. So here's what we try to do. My opinion, thoughts according to George Banding. Oftentimes what we attempt to do is we try to build an isolated system away from nature. Instead of with it, right? Yeah. Instead of connected to it, right? Why wouldn't we have three sides with glass windows rather than just one? If you really want to be in tune with nature. Yeah. Right? Great example. I used to sit on the porch with my grandmother, who was the first environmentalist that I ever met. So I often still, you've probably seen me give this presentation. It's a picture of me in my grandmother's arms. But my grandmother could tell me when it was going to rain, how long it was going to rain, which way the winds were blowing. And I would always sit there in awe as a young kid. Like, how does she know this? Like, how do you know? When I got older, I started asking her these questions. She was a little bit more stoic in her approach. She knew things that we didn't recognize until she shared it with me. Hmm. So she says, sit here with me, sat on the porch. And she says, what do you see? And I started to, oh, you know, green grass and leaves and, oh, man, figs on the fig tree. Like, I'm excited because I'm pointing out all the stuff that I see. Yeah. She says, what do you not see? Right? Hmm. She says, do you notice that there are no insects flying, no birds out chirping, no squirrels running and playing, chipmunks aren't out? Yeah. She says, we're the only creature that doesn't have enough sense to go and burrow when a storm is coming. Everybody else does. She says, you, you, you never see deer or when you have these storms that you're talking about, you don't see deer flying in the rain or coming, getting tossed out in a storm. You only see that in the movies. You never see cattle who are outside spinning around. No. They know how to connect together, get close so that they can impact the way that the wind flows between them. Like the only thing you see is building debris and humans because we are not smart enough to get out of the way. (laughs) So she said, if you pay attention to nature, it will pay attention to you. It will tell you everything that's going on in nature. Just watch. How how old were you in these? I may have been like eight, six. Wow. Um, But she's talking to me about this and I'm paying attention And there's a great book that David Oakey mentioned to me a time, and I read that book and I read it often, Last Child in the Woods, right? And it speaks about what we learned in nature. Like we learned sticky, hot, cold, learned how to swim. We learned how to um, pay attention, how to be respectful of nature. I think we've lost respect for nature. That's why we try to build buildings and pathways of tornadoes and hurricanes without designing them within nature. We design them as if we can beat nature at its own game. Right. And nature's undefeated. That's so true. And we continue to like, oh, we're going to put up these high skyscrapers right here off the coast. And we don't want to build in the fall. Huh? <laughs> like, come on. Right? 
We'll go and we'll clear cut acres of land to build residential housing and then stick a twig out this big in front of the house like it's going to protect it or cast shade on your home. But which homes hold the best value? The ones with the most forested areas. Yeah. Which ones lower the temperature and the climate around your home? So why wouldn't you build houses in the natural landscape of what a forested area would look like? Just trim where you need to put the house and design the house in that area. And the natural flow of rainwater or water that would come would change. Because when you carve out a mountain this way, do you think that the rain that's coming down is going to say, hey, they carved out a mountain. We're going to go the other way. I know I'm not going to have a lot of friends when I say this, but I'm just going to be honest with you. Rumor has it that I was the first sustainability officer at an institution of higher learning. 93. I haven't heard anybody contest. This is from Tony Cortese. Is it, Tony Cortese is from UT? Second Nature. UT Houston Health Science Center. Yeah. Brian Yeoman and John Pareto hired me from there. Second Nature, all that. There's a whole storyline behind that. Paul Hawken invited me to Second Nature through Dr. Robert Bullard, who's now, he's the, the, the father of environmental justice. Dr. Robert Bullard is at Clark Atlanta University. Now he's at uh, Texas Southern, has his own center around environmental justice. But I sat in a few of his classes because I had an interest in business and the environment when I was at Morehouse, which is where I did my undergrad. And like, he would always have these things on campus about environmental justice and going to these communities in Atlanta where they had like different types of um, manufacturing that was bad for the community. And like, I was excited about that, right? And I remember him, I remember like having a conversation with Dr. Johnson, who was also a, a faculty member of his, like, I want to do this. It's any other. He says, we need people who understand how to influence from the business side down, not always the community up. Mm. Right? He says, I want you to go over to Georgia Tech and hear this guy talk. And I went over to Georgia Tech and I heard Paul Hawken talk. Paul Hawken, I, I've shared this with him before, but he doesn't remember, but he invited me. He's like, hey, have you ever heard of the natural step? Carl Heinrich Robert, you know, this whole thing around the four systems condition of sustainability. And I was like, well, no. He's like, you should come out to Sausalito. He said, if you get out there, I'll take care of everything. So I'm sitting in there and I'm just like soaking all these four systems conditions in. And they're like burrowing and you got to take tests in order to be certified. And like, this was like the early stages. I was supposed to be up there for a month, end up staying for like four months. Wow. Right. Learning the natural step, kept going back, come home and go back. And um, out of that class, I then moved to Houston. And then Brian Yeoman and John Pareto called me and said, hey, we're looking for somebody to teach the natural step and sustainability. And we like the way that your energy is around teaching. Would you consider coming over as the sustainability officer for UT Houston? That's how I was invited to that role, really out of just networking with that group. Wow. And oh, Rick Fedrizi was in the class. Oh, my God. Like, man, that whole natural step thing. It was a big class. And a lot of the consultants that are now, like, doing a lot of sustainability stuff were there. They were comparing the natural step systems conditions to the Hanover principles. And, like, there was a lot going on. But I think what captured me was system condition number four. I've heard the first three, like, in different ways. Like, Substances from the earth's crust cannot systematically just continue to increase in nature without having a place to go. Like, can't take things from the earth's crust faster than Mother Nature can put them back. Sure. Right? Yeah. Then the second one was, of these things we pull from the earth's crust, we heat, beat, and treat them to be more durable at the request of the consumer. Carpet, bricks, whatever. We heat, beat, and treat them to make them more durable. And not only are we going to take things from the earth's crust, oh, they're mercury, be harder oil, to oil, break down. and give them to Mother Nature and say, handle that. Oh, but by the way, we're going to make it more durable, heat, beat, and treat it, and then we're going to give you that back, too. Think about how many laptops you've gone through, cell phones. Yeah. Think about how many overhead projectors. You remember the ones that had the little arm on them with the bulb that kept burning out that were hot, that would project stuff before we had? Then think about how many of these projection screens. What about the, all the big TVs with the strap across the top on the big cart with the VCRs, DVD players, like Palm Pilots. Like, if you just go through all of the stuff that we've, like, it, it's, it hurts to think hurts. about how much we've gone through the Razor phone. Like, bro, you can go through eras of understanding this stuff. And we made it 
hard for Mother Nature to decompose these things that naturally she would have had a process of decomposing. Oh, man. Right? Think about that. So in connectivity with that, that's system condition number two, the heat, beat, and treat. Now, the third thing is, is that, you know, what do we breathe out? Carbon dioxide. What's the only way to turn that back into something that we can use? Photosynthesis, right? Okay. okay, well, if you clear cut all the trees and put a whole bunch of people in a community and then you eliminate the ability for you to breathe out and then for nature to give you back what you need, you're separating yourself almost like you're controlling nature by having an air conditioner. Now you feel like you got controlled air, but you don't recognize that what you breathe out can't go in the air conditioner to create more air. It has to go into nature to do that. But because we are so incubated in that, like we don't think about that. So system condition three makes so much sense that the only way is photosynthesis. Like sun shines on the leaf, leaf does, does this process, takes our, what we breathe out and turns it into oxygen again. Like that's it. That's right? the only way. That's it. Right. Yeah. System condition number four is that you have to do this within the respect of meeting all people's basic human needs. That's the one that gets iffy because mm. everybody wants to have like, I want to measure how I'm impacting human needs. Yeah, you want to measure it based on your thermometer. Right. <laughs> OK, well, you got a community over here without a grocery store, but you want them to eat whole foods. How the hell that's going to work? The only thing close is a gas station, right? Like they gotta eat Twinkies, Ho Hos, right? Yeah, that's that's available. Coca Cola, right? I remember coming into, I won't. I remember visiting a manufacturing facility and they didn't have not one bottled water in the vending machine. Don't nobody remember that. Everybody's drinking Mountain Dew or yeah. Exactly, right? So. Like all of those things happen within the four systems condition. What I started doing was playing with them in my head. Like, what if this one was first? Like, and I think that, that was like what drew me in, right? Now, when I said a little while ago that I was gonna say something to make a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm ready for that. What I mean by that is, is that during that era of sustainability, people were just trying to figure it out, right? Then lead came along, right? greatest thing i think in the built environment because it spawned people to look at things differently yeah no shun on you know you know all the other things that are out there fit sure. well sure um uh, living building um c to c to c all those things that are out there right they all have a place but i think what people forgot about is that when this started and we started having green bills. It was about bringing together people from everywhere, you know, agriculture, architecture, the built environment, owners, like people coming from all over the place, right? Bro, consultants, architects, designers, and general contractors have gotten, excuse my French, fucking rich from 96 to 2006. Don't forget this. People were charging out the yang just to do a lead building. They would up their charges to increase their value at these different places. Products, prices going out the roof Ugh. in order to meet the lead standard. Like people keep, they, they shh, don't say that, George, but it happened. You could say, hey, I, I want to do a house right here. As soon as you said the word lead, the price almost doubled. Wow. I remember it. Right. And I'm going to tell you how much I remember. I remember when we were getting ready to do a lead building at UT. Right. Lead was just coming out. It was in its infancy stages. And I recognized that the architects we were talking to were raising the price every time we started talking about doing some of the lead things inside the building. This was first lead. So. <laughs> grandmother's wisdom. My grandmother used to say. People rather listen to the news than read the newspaper because they don't want the trouble of reading. So what I did was I went and pulled all the lead stuff off the Internet and wrote it in the contract for the general contractor and the architect. Just hit it in the language. They're not going to read it? No, sir. No, sir. And I'm talking about cause the biggest uproar. I just didn't use the word lead anywhere. But I wrote in everything else. Yeah, yeah. Into the contract, embedded into the contract. Bro's the biggest. 
legal battle going back and forth that you ever saw. But like, if if you really have lead as a standard, then like, as an architect, why wouldn't you want that as a standard? Right. If you say you want to build the healthiest, best building, that for is me, the only option. Yeah. Well, buildings are set. Like, it, it, I, and it it was like the first time that I recognized like, I didn't know about being sued at that point. No. <laughs> But I I learned quickly. Can I ask about your grandma? Was she, did she see you become a chief sustainability officer? She did? Yeah, I'm going to tell you one of the best stories too. I know you like stories. I love them. But my grandmother had the privilege of seeing me um, get into my career. And um, she enjoyed it. She heard me speak a few times, which like just did my heart good because I always started out the video with her. but the best story was when I first became the sustainability officer at UT Houston, I came home for a holiday and um, came home and I don't know, maybe I'm dating myself, but, you know, bottled water used to not exist. Yeah. You used to get it, right? You used to, it was a hose pipe or <laughs> right out the sink, right? So yeah. um, I came home and I had like a couple bottled waters. And so my grandmother had glaucoma couldn't see very well. It was like an eye disease. And so I came in and, you know, she touched me on the side of the head. She says, hey, baby, how you doing? I said, I'm good, Granny, how you? She said, I'm doing good for an old lady. You know, and we just started talking and laughing. And and I started telling her, I was like, hey, Granny, I got this job as a sustainability officer at university. And like, here's what I'm doing. I'm like, you know, putting in waterless journals in the bathroom and we're doing some solar stuff and I'm teaching people about the importance of reducing and we're recycling paper. And like I went through this whole spiel and she just kind of was looking at me with this smirk. I was like, she said, baby, sound like you got a job that's just teaching common sense. <laughs> right. And my family just busted out laughing. Right. Because to her, it's kind of like, like what, what, what are you really doing? Like, <laughs> you went to school for oh, that. That's right? so, good. so a few minutes later, I had a bottle of water sitting like on the dresser and um, she reaches over to get something or medicine or something and hits the water and spills it. And she's like, oh, baby, I'm sorry I knocked over your soda. And I said, no, Granny, I'm sorry it was a bottle of water. You know what I mean? It, don't worry about it. I got another one in the car. And I went to the car to get more water and came back inside. And she was pulling my dad and my mom and, like, all my cousins over to the bed. Like, hey, come here. And, like, they were like, what, what is it, Granny? She said, all the schooling for we paid for that boy and somebody sold him some bottle of water. <laughs> At that moment, I recognized she can't even fathom you buying bottled water, man. Like, she was so lost, right? And yeah. she felt sorry for like, me. Where, like, how did we get here? How right. did we get here? And it was like, at that moment, I recognized, like, things are changing right in front of us. Yeah. Um, and the timing of that change was stoic. But it was also very humbling, right? Yeah. It was the disconnect between humanity and people who were like, well, why are we doing this? And the connectivity of Flint, Michigan is that we got to do it because we've got a river that's full of toxins. Yep. Right. And it was at that moment I realized like, man, something that's happening in Flint has impacted my grandmother in Opelika, Alabama. Wow. Right. And it was mind boggling that, our bad behavior somewhere else has influenced how we're going to drink water for the rest of our lives. Right? That's wild. Two minutes later, my grandmother was, she realized that she had made a joke at that point. And so she comes and says, hey, baby, come here for a second. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, you smell that? I said, what's that? She said, that fresh air coming in the door. She says, how much would you buy that from me for? <laughs> <laughs> She said, God gives me that That's for free, awesome. but I'll sell it to you if you want to buy it. So for her, it's kind of like, I'm going to sell you some air, too, if you yeah. want to buy a bottle yeah. of water. So, like, it was one of those things. Her sense of humor around what nature was was just, like, so incredible, Of you know. And so, like, every time I would come home after that, I'd be like, Granny, you want to buy some rain? <laughs> she, you know, or, you know, uh, you want to buy some sunshine today? Like, we had our running joke of... You know, nature provides us a lot of things for free, 
and we do our best to encapsulate it and then market it and put a value on it and then offer it to other people, right? Something as small as you have a small home downtown, that's the only thing that somebody left their family. And then you build this big building up there right next to it. And like they're set to like, they got to look at this building. No more sunsets, no more this. And they either got to move or they got to try to figure out how to yeah. make this work for them. And like this happens all the time. It's a progression. The only problem now is that it used to only happen in big cities. Now people want these micro cities, right? So we're expanding our poor decision-making around buildings as well as poor decision-making about how we live, how we design. And like now we're trying to re-mid-course correct that behavior, right? And there's a global mid-course correction going on too. So when we were the only ones that were privatizing the wealth and socializing the risk. Okay, hold on there. Privatizing the wealth, socializing the risk. Taking things from the earth crust, using them in an industrial process, making whatever it is that people needed, and then having environmental impacts, asbestos, oil leaks, refineries catching on fire, cancer alley in Carolina, I mean in uh, uh, Louisiana. People in these communities had to bear. Privatizing the wealth, socializing the risk. When we were the only ones doing it, it was okay. But now other countries want the same profitability as we've made. Mm. So they're privatizing their own wealth of their materials and socializing their own risk. So this has impacted like this global movement because before it was just us, right? Oh, look at the U.S., their industrial revolution. We're on the fourth industrial revolution now. Right. Yeah. And like it's a global revolution. And what we still have not done is put our arms around socializing the risk. Right. The the risk is not just to humanity and people, but it's also to nature. Right. You see animals washing up by the millions. Yeah. You see gyres of plastic out in the ocean like you see, you know, this this large rock of ice that just washed up where you could see it from Rhode Island. And, they, like, and the nature, they don't even have a voice. Like mm-mm. they don't get to speak up. Mm-mm. It's speaking up by doing that. Yeah. Right? So wow. the, the final, and I can't remember um, where I heard this. I think I was at a Native American reservation out in Arizona. And one of the leaders of the Native American Reservation said to me, he says, you you wise man. He told me I was a wise man. And he said, remember this. Mother Nature can live with or without us. She knows how to self-correct. Yeah, yeah. The planet will move on. I think the thing that we don't recognize is that happening all around us, bit by bit, piece by piece, and raised to say, you know, one sparrow falling at a time, one crooked politician at a time, you know, raised to give that speech. And he would talk about all the individual things, one dying flower at a time, one misplaced waterhead at a time, one non-natural gas system at a time. Like he would go through that literation and like, I'm seeing that every day, like expirations of species or changes of behaviors or like decisions that are being made and <clears throat> that whole evolution of things is happening and it's, it's sombering sometimes because you know when you commit your life to really trying to have an impact and to also have an impact on communities of concern by making them aware that there's a career opportunity in this right like this should not be a white 50 year old male plight of focused on environmental sustainability it should be a because you can't get there like that yeah i mean can let's talk about that for a minute because it it can be a very doom and gloom industry how do you stay i mean what are you optimistic about how do you stay optimistic when you are dealing with something like you said that is what was the word sombering 
I go speak at an elementary school or just sit in an elementary school at least once a month. Oh, wow. I don't care where I'm at. If you go in there and you see the little milk carton with the little green plant coming out of it, optimism, like they, they're, they're, they get it. I, I agree with they that. They get it. I agree. If you sit and you watch this next generation, I, I think one of the things that my kids uh, who are adults now would tell me is, Dad, you guys messed it up. You need to figure out how to fix it. Like they really hold us accountable. Yeah. Right? And in their mind, they think that technology will come up with a solution that will kind of balance everything out. Um, I call that space age sustainability. Right? Um <laughs> But th- there's so much optimism for me just in like watching some of the sustainability initiatives, yeah. um, watching people evolve and change and get better, watching uh, generations kind of come together to try to solve solutions in a different way. Um, when you see corporate America really making sincere investments in doing you know, climate reduction efforts or looking at climate neutral solutions or yeah. uh, launching different types of things or having conversations with people who've been in the space. Um, but I think that it, my optimism is also met with pessimism when I see people who use it only as a business ploy to advance their own profitability I think that there's a place for that, but I also think that there has to be commitments that you extend as a handprint rather than a footprint, right? Like there, there, there are commitments that you need to make in social activity, in hiring diversity, in um, training people, in opening up. Uh, different types of ways to engage folks to be a part of the sustainability journey in different ways. And um, and I think that part, to me, could use a boost. There are some great ones out there, <clears throat> great companies who've done some amazing stuff, and all of them have great intentions. I've worked for a lot of CE, well, one, two, three, four CEOs now and one president of a university. So what I'll say is of all my CEOs, only one of them led with sustainability, and that was Ray Anderson. The rest of them leveraged it and made decisions around it, but the proof level had to be higher. Ray's level of proof had to be higher, but he was the one doing the proving. So when he came to you, he had already done all the research and it was kind of like, thou shalt, <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah. let's go. Um, <clears throat> my journey's been amazing and it's allowed me to feel optimistic with each level of of the journey. And I've enjoyed it. Quite I, a bit. I love how you kind of understood optimism at a personal level at a corporate level, career level. Um, earlier on, you talked about your your grandma actually getting to see you speak. <laughs> you're, you're known for your speech. I mean, you you deliver some incredible speeches. I appreciate that. There, there was a story you have about speaking at a university. <laughs> and it, it, it was... <laughs> it's hard not... It's hard. I mean, you're chuckling now. Yeah. But for a moment, it was jaw-dropping. Can you oh walk God. us through that? Sure. Um, I won't call out the university because I feel like that. But I don't think that individual misunderstanding about what's important to human beings in life is a holistic thing. I think that there are individuals that have issues. So... Um. So I, I was supposed to be speaking at, I think it was either eight or nine o'clock. Um, it was a really, really cold state, I'll just say that. And um, they asked me to be there early. 
Like, hey, we want to get you mic'd up, this, this, and this. So it was a pretty secure campus. I showed up, you know, I got there, no one was around. I'm like, hey, I've got a speaking engagement. Can't remember the name of the hall. It was a hall down the way. You see students moving all over the place, but I'm suited up because I'm speaking. And um, no security in the booth, so I, you know, get dropped off by a taxi. I jump out, backpack on. I got my phone out. I'm trying to figure out where I'm at, and I'm asking people where I'm going. And <clears throat> I, um, I get close, and I'm right by the bookstore. And you know how those quads are, like you. You can see all the buildings, but you're just kind of in the center of the campus. Yeah. And there was really no one there because the students, I guess, come from the dorms on the other side into the other entrance point. So I'm trying to find out. And like this security guard shows up. He's like, what are you doing here? And he's like asking me like this whole litany of interrogative questions. And before I can say like what I'm doing there, he's, he's like, you know, we don't let people on campus. Like, you don't have a badge. Like, he is, like, drilling me. And I'm like, bro, I'm, I promise you I'm here to speak. And I'm I'm like, well, if you let me, you know, tell you, I'll tell you who I'm here to speak for. And I'm trying to thumb it through my palm pilot looking for the guy's name. And, and I'm trying to express him. Like, I don't know him. And this. I was like, well, I'm at such and such and such a hall. And so a few minutes later, another guy comes. He's like, oh, yeah, there's people over here. And, like, this guy's still being, like, ridiculously difficult. And I'm like, bro, he's up. It's too early. I need coffee. <laughs> but, you know, they walk me and like, he's like on my heels all the way there. Right. Of course, this is a predominantly white private institution. So we make it. And uh, the guy's like, oh, my God, George Manning. Like he comes up and he hugs me and, and security guards like standing there like, uh oh. Right. <laughs> and so he stays, of course, to hear me speak, which. And so I walked on the stage and I gently started off my speech by saying, hey, I'm so happy to be here. And I want to give a special thanks to Officer such and such for my personal security and helping me to navigate my way to this particular location. Because I wanted him to know that I nice. recognized that your behavior was flawed. Right, right. But I want to encourage you that the next time that that happens to take a position of comfort and, yeah. you know, trying to be helpful and you could tell because he put his head down and was like you could tell he was super embarrassed and the other guy was cracking up because he knew that this guy was a hard kind of guy and really yeah. kind of uh, stringent in his approach but and it was, um, it was a good it was a good shout out oh yeah it was a good one right and and so i had you know of course when we're in the back i'm sharing it with the faculty and the guy who invited me to come and speak and i'm telling him about what happened and he's like oh i'll go get him i was like no i'll handle it right he wanted to like go and you know talk to the guy and scold him i was like no i gotta do that i was like because that's not gonna change his behavior right it's right. only gonna make him even be more susceptible to the next african-american guy sure. who comes on the campus so i said I'll, I'll i'll handle it and when i said it you could tell he was kind of embarrassed he came up and apologized afterwards and i just pulled him to the side i was like hey man i i get it all right and i told him I says, but what i don't understand is like where does humanity kick in and security kick out Ooh, yeah right I, there's nothing threatening about me right i'm, I'm fully suited i'm clearly position to go and deliver a message. And I was like, and that wasn't enough. Like, what would have been enough? I shared my ID with you. Like, help me understand what I could have done differently. And like, he was very sombered by it, right? And I could tell it kind of hit him a little bit different. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, just had the same leniency that you would expect if you were in a position like this. Just, and that's humanity, right? And so, you know, I think that sometimes we lose sight of like our connective woven ability to have an appreciation and respect for not just one another as humans, but also for our role and our place in nature, mm. right? We try so hard to disconnect ourselves from nature because we don't want to feel hot. We don't want to feel cold. We don't want to experience this. We don't want to smell that. We don't want to do this. We don't want to do that. So we distance ourselves from nature and Nature is constant and consistent, right? In the summertime, when it's hot, flies and mosquitoes are out. 
stop looking for something else, right? <laughs> right? If you got high grass in the back, you're going to get some snakes and some worms. Like that, that's part of it, right? So I think that sometimes we try to create these comfort zones of isolation um, and we don't recognize that nature is a part of who, what, where, when, and why we are at all times. Yeah. And that was the brilliance and the beauty of sustainability for me. And it still is. So when you ask me why I'm so optimistic, it is that. It is the crux of the matter that allows me to see humanity, nature, business, the environment, all interlocked in a meaningful pathway to sustain people, sustain places, sustain nature, and sustain humanity in a way that's consistent. And I, I still have visionary hopes of seeing that manifest in my lifetime. We can do it. Oh, absolutely. George, I I have questions here. Let's do them. And actually, to be honest, like I'm looking at these and I'm like, these are probably way less interesting than what's in that book. <laughs> My notebook. So part of me is like, George, like what's in the book? Like what's in the book that you want to share? Is there something there? So yeah, these are like notes. There's things that I see that I just get excited about. Um, there are things that I observe or I listen to things and I'm like, I don't want to forget that. I want to come back and visit it at some point. And so I write them down. But you brought them here. Yeah. Like, can you, yeah. can you like, Sure. Take me, take, take me somewhere. Through, um, so, oh wow! Um, see. <laughs> hold that up, hold that up, real quick. Oh, this one. Oh, notes. <laughs> <laughs> Tons of notes. <laughs> pages on pages of notes. Um, and this is probably six, eh, a little bit more than six years worth in these two or three. Um, so let, let, let me, one of the things I have a lot of pride about is my era of sustainability at UT Houston and then at Interface and then at Mohawk. And during that era, it was always talk about like, you know, does, is there a place for sustainability in big tech, right? So Kara Hurst gave me the opportunity to come in and do um, circular economy at Amazon. And it was rigorous, it was different, it was um, hectic, it was fun, it was exciting, it was energetic, it was fast paced, but it was also during COVID. And so it was disconnected at the same time. It, it, it didn't uh, get me, so I, I, I worked there for a couple of years, but one of the notes in here, one of the great things that I will always remember is I had the incredible opportunity to do a um, video with uh, Sheila Jackson from Amazon, I mean, from uh, Apple. And we were talking about sustainability at Amazon and sustainability and circularity at Apple. And we had this great conversation. And I've met her a couple of times before, but during this time, it's probably one of the things that I wrote down in here is like the words that she shared were words that resonated with me, confidence with humility, great people, really committed, um, metrics are foundational, but the work is passionate. Like those are some of the things that like I remembered um, as I went through this, investing in sustainability, establishing incredible, incredible progress, partnering with companies like Amazon on uh, connecting at a broader level. Like it was those things and like some of the work that happened as a result of that communication that really tell me that it's possible, right? Um, I think the success of sustainability is not about individual organizations. It's more about collaboration between businesses for a greater good. I'm probably going to say this and I'm, I might get in a little bit of trouble, but when you asked me what was in a notebook, I thumbed through and I skimmed across something that 
I said I wasn't going to say it now. I guess I got to say it. <laughs> um, I think we're at a place where LEAD and has done an amazing job, and I still serve on the GBCI board uh, well under their leadership, has done an amazing job um, getting its brand in the marketplace, impacting communities around health and wellness. Um, and Lindsey Baker going out to Living Future, who is like, I remember Lindsay when I was at South Face, right? She was there. I was incredible. And then Rachel Gutter, who was on the staff when I served as chairman, and Kimberly, and then like Peter Templeton. Now these, those were all like the, those are all three young guns that grew up out of the sustainability movement, you know. And so to see them in their respective places leading is just almost incredible to see. I think to a certain extent that as board members and as leaders that are respected in this space, there are a few things kind of like nature provides a few things to us for free that we don't respect, right, that we should. I think that the competitiveness of these organizations is good, but there should be some shared goals that all three of them or others unite to deliver. Hmm. I don't think that anybody would question that we should be measuring the impact of the built environment across all three of these organizations to climate change. And we should have a ticker that shows every time lead well or living building that contributes to all three. And that number just runs so that we can see what our work has actually done in the past and what it continues to do. And it should be on everybody's page. Yeah. That's real. Yeah. It's measurable and it gives people a sense of hope and optimism. Number two, health and wellness, right? They all are doing work around health and wellness. They are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know what the measurement needs to be, and I really don't care. Let's have an agreed upon measurement. Let Amory Lovins figure out what the agreed upon measurement. Let Harvard's medical school figure out. Let Morehouse School of Medicine. Somebody get together and figure out what that measurement looks like and let's calculate that. That's the second thing. The third thing, equity, right? And that's the hardest one to measure. Even if you just put list yeah. of projects around equity up, these many equity projects, these many impacts on people, these many touches in the community, whatever that is. That's, those are three things that I think all of us can agree upon as things that are outcomes of our work in that space. So that's one of the things that I've scrolled across that I had written down. So in my new notebook, it's really about the work that I'm doing in the new role that I'm at, which is um, focused on fashion, non-woven industry. Um, the company that I work for makes polyester staple fiber, which goes into shirts, jackets, furniture, lining, Swiffers, wet wipes, that kind of stuff. And so I began to look at the fashion industry and the fashion industry has struggled, right? And in all honesty, the fashion industry is where the flooring industry was almost 10, 12 years ago. Oh, wow. Because they're trying to figure out like some unified format or, you know, the supply chain is scattered, smothered, covered, chunked and capped like a Waffle House breakfast. Like a, I was just about <laughs> to say that. And the brands are being criticized and the cultures are just buying stuff by leaps and bounds. The fast fashion is just unbelievable. So, you know, like I know, there's only three ways to really address sustainability in that industry. And it's either climate neutrality or reducing the climate impact of the things that you're making. Bio-based solutions, which also has an impact on nature, land mass, products that you will be able to use for this. And then there's the recyclability, right? 
And when you have a 20% polyester, 10% cotton, and 50% rayon, and 8% other stuff in one shirt, it's hard to navigate all of this. So in my mind, I'm saying the one thing that I know that I can do is I can impact my manufacturing process and lower it to its best of its ability. I can start adding renewable energy to the manufacturing process. I can look at my supply chain and then say, where can I have influence on reducing the global impact on my particular product solution by impacting my supply chain? And then I can begin to develop a process to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the areas that need it the most, in those places that you're making product, in those places that you're harvesting things, in those places. So making investments to improve the value of that. So we changed the name from Fiber Industries to Darling Fibers, and we sit on 765 acres that is now called uh, Darlington Green. And it's a campus that we're creating a sustainability hub and we're inviting the brands to come and partner, coexist, collaborate, strategize, look at ways to have an impact um, on the textiles that are manufactured and creating a sustainability solution in different ways. So I look at it like this. You know, like I know, scope one emissions is like the surface scratch, right? Right. Where I think the industry is struggling is like, how do we get our suppliers to impact climate change at the manufacturing level and help us? So I went back to Ray's old playbook, right? Like, and I was like, okay, we're going to, just like Interface created climate neutral carpet top, we're going to create climate neutral stable fiber, and then we're going to go back and we're going to work with our suppliers to continue to reduce that footprint to see what that embodied carbon looks like. And we're going to work with, um, hopefully, partners that say, wow, this is a great idea. And because our product is 40% polyester staple fiber, we're going to bring them on and hopefully it can grow. And like, so my CEO was having a conversation with me. He's like, well, George, what, like, what's your goal? Like, where, what's your objective? I was like, you know what? I'm going to give you something that you can relate to because he's from New Jersey. I said, you ever had a Gore-Tex jacket? He's like, yeah, so you know that Gore-Tex jacket, Nike makes them, Adidas makes them, different companies, North Face makes them, like other people make them, but it's just a Gore-Tex. I said, I want to be the Gore-Tex of polyester staple fiber for climate neutrality. You know, viewing the climate neutral opportunities is going to be good for us to kind of get ourselves out in the industry and get established in terms of trying to be creative and innovative in this particular space. So I'm humble. I'm excited. Um, anybody listening to this podcast, I'm open to talk. Um, <laughs> Well, George, you know, your, your humility, you know, your, your humble nature, it has to be essential to what you do because you have to know the world is bigger than just you or just us. Yeah. You know, we're not alone. Yeah. And, and your dedication, your lifelong dedication to this work is incredible. And it's honorable and you're creating a legacy that I, that I, that I believe will inspire many other George Bandys. I hope so. I, that's the whole objective, right? I think sometimes, you know, um, you, you can't <laughs> you, you can't outthink yourself, right? Sometimes hmm. we get so caught up in trying to prove a point or to to outprove someone else. Um, that you lose sight of the purpose of what you're doing, right? What, what, is, what is the purpose of what you're doing? If the purpose is for you to be number one. That's a short game. That's a short game because you're not always going to be number one. Yeah. And that's why Ray always talked about coming up Mount Sustainability. People would be coming from different sides and different types of professions and different industries. Like everybody's got a role. And I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, too. And that's why I struggle with now that we're at these high levels of sustainability, these big ESG goals. And so when you have this small startup company that begins to do something minute and then they get accused of greenwashing for doing something minute, it's almost like you're sustainability scolding. Right. Yeah. You're really not doing anything if you're just doing that. If you're just recycling, then you're really not doing anything. 
And I'm saying to myself, like, don't nobody remember when we just were recycling? Like, is it just me? Like, and, and maybe this era of younger generation has got a little bit more fire and data's mm. out there. You know, they don't have microfish and microfilm. They didn't have to read newspaper to go get their information. So, like, everything's, like, on this phone. But, like, I think that we need to be a little bit more conscious of the fact that you got to start somewhere. Yeah. Crawl, walk, run, right? Like, you've got to give people the grace that you were given, Right. And usually when you don't do that, something usually you hit the wall yourself, hmm. right? Because there are things that you're not doing very well at. You're just better at hiding them, right? Wow. <laughs> so I think that we need to encourage those mid, small suburban, different community to begin to think about things a little bit differently. And also, you know, remember that their resources may be limited as well. And so like, encourage them to also think about sustainability in a different way. Cause I, I don't think that this is a one community solution. It ain't going to happen that way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's going to have to be a globalized effort for people to begin to think about things differently, to make different types of investments, to collaborate a little bit more effectively. And it's often difficult. Right. And I think that, you know, some of the, you know, I call them uh, warriors that, kind of led the way, um, they don't get enough credit for the things that they did and opening up the pathways. I think if a lot of people really took a look back, I can't remember the exact year, but I think it was either 2010 or 2016, those dates are resonating in my mind, when the first degree for sustainability was established at Arizona State. Wow, that, that, is, that seems way too late in the game. <laughs> right? So... Wow. In my mind, I'm saying, and my dates may be wrong, so like, don't quote me. I'm but, just yeah. speculating. But I'm, my point is, is that where the hell did all these sustainability experts come from? Right? Like, all these new chief sustainability officer roles that are everywhere, head of ESG, head of sustainability. Who's head of, filling those roles? <laughs> right? Yeah. So I have, a, I have a theory in my mind that it started with uh, the people who were over environmental health and safety. And because the new word came out, then it was like, okay, we're just going to change their title. And these people with environmental health and safety really don't understand sustainability, and they really didn't, right? And they had to learn on the job, and it, a lot of bad stuff probably happened. But, you know, then you had corporate social responsibility, which was usually housed in HR. Yeah. And now they pulled that out to create these roles in the early, mid-2000s. Like, now we're going to go from you know, EHS, head of sustainability to corporate social responsibility. And then it went to chief sustainability officer. Then it went to head of ESG. And now it's like a combination of all of those things, right? Right. To do that ESG role and that head of sustainability and chief sustainability officer role, it's not about OSHA and ISO as much as it is about looking at the bigger vision for the company, you know, yeah. products, planning relationships, partnerships, you know, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, greenhouse gas inventory, CDP. Like, it's more about those things that you don't have the luxury of trying to learn those things on the job, right? And oftentimes, I think that that whole emergence of need of having someone in that role really hurt the sustainability initiative and the movement because the right people weren't put in those positions who were really equipped to do it. Well, that's and, an interesting observation. Yeah, that, absolutely. You know, absolutely. even the best intentions sent us backward a little. Yeah. Wow. So I, I'm 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 still very humble. Like people call me all the time for stuff, right? I, I don't know. Well, I, I don't I don't believe I, people always say, "Man, that that was your quote or that was your idea." Like somebody took that and ran with it. I believe that's the best form of flattery. That's right. right? So along those lines, how, how does someone reach out? Let's say somebody right now says, uh, how do I ping George? Um, Gbandy at darlingfibers.com. Or you can always hit me on my Instagram. It's ecomafia12 uh, on IG. And um, I'm not giving out my cell number on this. No, one, let's but, not uh, do that. But George, or you can hit me at georgebandy12. 12, the number 12 at gmail.com. But 
I'm grateful, man. Thank you so much for having me, man. We've been trying to put this together for a while. <laughs> yeah. It's not the great state of Indiana, but Atlanta is a is a good second. And uh, gracious to our friends here at Mannington for allowing me to use this space. And uh, I'm always uh, happy to to be on uh, on a podcast with you, my friend. George, you are fantastic. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. more design stories, visit us at OFS.com slash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. Thanks for listening.